You're listening to the Consumer Fi Podcast, powered by Norridge, loan software that accelerates change. Welcome, everybody, to the Consumer Fi Podcast. I'm super pleased to have with us again today a repeat offender with Joe Chiaffi of uh, Davis and Gilbert. Joe, welcome to the podcast again. Uh, thanks so much, Joel. I'm happy to be a repeat offender in this case. <laughs> Glad to be here. So um, for the folks that don't know, you need to know, uh, Credit Chronometer uh, is a fantastic resource. That's um, Joe is basically the, the driver of that. Uh, it's supported by Davis and Gilbert as well. And uh, um, that is a survey you run. Well, you used to run it annually. Now COVID kind of messed stuff up. Um, by, the, by the time you guys are hearing this podcast, uh, the survey uh, is actually going to be open and available. And we encourage anyone and everyone that matches one of the profiles of the market participants to, to actually participate. And we think that's going to make it a better, uh, you know, more robust, uh, more, more grand kind of coverage uh, survey. Joe, do you want to give a little detail on that about the timing of it and uh, where people go and how they participate? Yeah, sure. Appreciate that opportunity, Joel. It's um. So it's our third annual survey. As Joel mentioned, we've done these in the past. You know, COVID threw a little wrench into things last year where we did, we thought it was important to do more than just one survey. So it became an annual survey survey with a, with an update um, later in the year. Um, this year, we'll see how many we need to do. And hopefully we're coming out of the pandemic and this might be, you know, this might be the only one since it all drop uh, around uh, May. And we hope to give the uh, presentation of the results with a panel at the NAF um, later in the year and in, in the fall timeframe. Um, and so I'd appreciate if anybody, whether you're, um, it's not hard to meet the qualifications to, to, to take the survey. It's you're either an originator, you're an investor, you're a trustee, you're a servicer, you're, or you're an advisor to any of those. And you're in, if you're in the market, we'd like to hear from you what you think in terms of the, the questions that we ask, go to the, the performance outlook for loans and securitizations, the sufficiency of credit enhancements, where we think credit ratings are going, uh, and uh, specific things this time around, like the regulatory environment and what folks are hearing about, thinking about, concerned about in a change of the administration and maybe a, a new aggressive CFPB. That's something we're hearing a lot about from folks. So we want to go to the market and ask people in, in particular, you know, what they're thinking in terms of their concerns are in the regulatory environment. It, that, that voice of the, of these market participants has been a really nice add to the picture. Um, as you know, uh, you, you did mention, I'll, I'll give a plug for the NAF. The National Automotive Finance Association <laughs> is going to have their annual conference live in Plano at the end of August. You can check it out at the, check out, just Google National Automotive Finance Association. You'll get to our website and we would love to have folks there. Auto lenders, uh, auto dealers, uh, anybody in a supporting industry, power sports, uh, you know, we, we kind of count them all under the umbrella. So please uh, uh, consider joining us. And um, we've had Joe uh, as a presenter in the past as well. And uh, you've been tied in with Fraud Friday as well as the regular tracks. And so, you know, that's, that's not to be missed. Joe, you mentioned something um, a minute ago about um, 
about the 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 regular the change in the regulatory environment. Yeah. So obviously with subprime, there's a lot of concerns. We've been uh, concerned. I'm concerned with a couple of things, right? So I'm concerned about state-based uh, mm-hmm. regulatory stuff, like kind of building their own CF mini CFPBs, we call them. Uh, there are there's the rate caps that we've seen that went in or are threatening to go in. I, I, I apologize. I, I don't know if they've passed, but I know that there's some rate cap issues in Illinois, I think. Um, but at the, in terms of like, you know, the, uh, the subprime auto regulatory outlook, you know, what are the types of things that you're expecting to see folks chiming in about, or what are the types of things you've been hearing? Cause I think it's an area of concern. Yeah. Yeah. Joel, it, it really is. I mean, I, I've had an investors call in particular more so than the, uh, than the lenders, but investors asking, you know, how is the regulatory environment and the new administration, is it really going to shake up lending and the quality of loans and add costs to the whole structure? Um, and I, there's so much uncertainty out there because not only do you have a new administration, but you have a new administration taking hold in the middle or hopefully tail end of a pandemic. And so it's hard to get a read on what is the underlying performance, base performance of the of the market in the first instance, how much has been propped up by, by stimulus, how much is that stimulus going to be needed going forward? And then what happens if you have an aggressive CFPB or state AGs who now put a bit of a chill on, on a freer a lending market, right? And on, on and tightening of credit, credit standards because of some concerns about uh, the CFP's enforcement. And to give you some examples of things where I, I know there has been some concern is that, you know, so the CFPB has really come out of the gate quite strong, not in subprime auto lending yet, but we're getting a sense already of the kind of activist stance that they're going to take. Um, and folks might be familiar now with a, um, a case brought against a, um, an immigrant bond company, this Nexus uh, Financial Services uh, case out in Virginia where even though the bond service is not necessarily a lender, the CFPB is taking their position that they are offering financial accommodations and they're under their regulatory scheme. Um, The bond company in return says, no, I'm regulated by insurance regulators, so you can't regulate me. Besides that, I'm actually just a life coach. I'm, I'm helping folks with their debt. So CFPB, get out of my business. It's, you know, we don't know where that's going to go. And those arguments probably are a bit of a stretch. Mm. Um, but the CFPB, right? So the CFPB, let's look at it on a higher level. What does this case really mean? It means that the CFPB maybe is not that worried about expanding what its definition of what a lender is. Like who who is a lender? And that relates to... Um, auto dealers, right? So right now, auto dealers are are not under the CFPB's purview, but they can become so, right, and be pulled into um, the concerns that the CFPB has, even if they're not particularly you know, specified to be under the, the regulation. So who who's subject to the CFPB's concerns? Hmm. And, and then what is it? What is that kind of conduct that they're going to find objectionable? And they took a very aggressive stance as to what was objectionable by that the Nexus company and saying basically under unfair and deceptive trade practices acts, um, basically just because the as a, a primary concern is that the contracts were not in English. So if you had non-speaking uh, uh, borrowers or, or entities uh, doing business under 
um, English contracts, that's abusive, right? Um, so we don't know where this is gonna go, but it does signal a very strong stance by them. And, and it makes you wonder in the other areas that we could see a being potential concern, what they might do. You know, one other area is um, disparate impact. You know, we've known for a very you know, long time that's just a concern in, in auto lending and subprime auto lending. It doesn't matter what your intent is. If, if in actuality you have discriminated or even the dealers, you know, discriminated in terms of their markups against the disadvantaged and, and minority uh, borrowers, that could be concerned for disparate impact. And I think it's always been on everyone's radar, but the, the prior administration was a bit asleep, asleep at the switch on this, right? So now it's just a matter of being cognizant that that can come into the forefront now as a, it could be a, a real concern. Um, and so that's, that's one area we wanna look at you know, pretty closely. What becomes an abusive practice? You know, uh, what is potentially, a dis um, creates a disparate impact? Um, and, you know, let me throw out one more thing on disparate impact, you know, the importance of uh, AI, right? So artificial intelligence, you know, machines can, um, can discriminate just as uh, well as the rest of us. <laughs> they can discriminate just as well as, as humans can. I mean, uh, un unknowingly, of course, you know, without any purpose, uh, uh, but that's exactly what the problem would be with artificial intelligence is it's the effect. And so, we need to keep an eye on those programs and constantly adjust and monitor those programs so they are not having a discriminatory effect on any one segment of the market. And, and those are some areas that we're seeing. Uh, and now what I'd really like to know in terms of the, um, the survey is are folks concerned about those same areas? You know, and, and so how does that impact their, um, their fear of, what, of the unknown? It's kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm expecting this survey to be a bit of, um, you know, uh, the broad brush uh, approach to this, I think is really that fear of the unknown is probably going to drive market behavior going forward. Um, how much of that fear comes from the unknown quantity of the CFPB and their regulatory environment under the Biden administration? Yeah, I mean, it, we call it, uh, people who trade call it FUD, fear. Uh, <laughs> Is it fear, uh, uncertainty, and doubt? And I, I get that. I totally get that. Um, Joe, I think this time around, though, like when you look at regulation through enforcement, through Cordray, after mm -hmm. the Dodd-Frank was, was written and the organization was created, uh, you know, dealers were carved out and it, it was kind of like a no looking back equation. But now you have people questioning, you know, whether they're going to be re-included. I don't even know what it would take. Is that a legislative issue? Is it a regulatory? Like, how would they even go about doing that? And could they? So, somebody may be able to answer that question really quickly. But in my mind, that, that just indicates the level of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's like they're hitting us from all these angles. They're hitting people who say that they're not even under their, their supervision. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, this is the environment that we're in. We're just in an absence of information. Yeah, you know, and I, and I think it um, it takes a long time to get a bill passed, right, and get through the political environment and all. So, so how how can the CFPB enact this much more quickly? Uh, you know, normally I would say going through the courts is not going to be easy, but in this case, you know, what they can do is really just take an expansive view of the existing regulations and and, and UDAP, the the unfair yeah. deceptive 
Trade Act is quite broad. And that's, I think that's what we're seeing right off the bat is they're going to be uh, willing to use that in a much more expansive way at the federal Back level. And you, you touched on, you know, and you touched on very early too, you started the state level. I mean, in that, in that bond case, uh, they were joined by state AGs. We know how aggressive the Massachusetts state AG is, but they were joined by, by several others in that case, by the Virginia and the New York state AGs as well. And I think you're going to see more of a coordinated effort at the federal and the state level going forward. Um, and, you know, and I think when it comes to dealers, you know, there, there, there's, there are going to be hooks for the CFPB to bring them in, in terms of their participation in an overall, you know, at the point of sale. You know, yeah. I think that they're going to become very interested in everything that surrounds that point of sale in, partic- in particular, you know, and how is the dealer working with the, the lender? We saw it with Santander and the Massachusetts AG and what they were they, um, you know, it, it all came back to Santander at that point, not the dealers, but how much did Santander know about what the dealers were doing? And when it did find out what they were doing, what did it do to, to protect its its borrowers, right? Um, so I think the, the dealer conduct has always been a concern for for the CFPB, but through the lender's eyes, and I, they were through the going through the lender to get to the dealer conduct um, to regulate the dealer conduct, but but stopping at the at the lenders going forward, I think they're going to look for ways to pull the dealers in in a sense of whatever their conduct is that related back to you know, maybe disparate impact and how it impacted the lenders. And and I'm, while I'm saying this, I can just see how there is a. Um, a, a cycle, an effect of an impact that that the CFP would, uh, CFPB would want to promote here is that you know lenders knowing that they have responsibility and obligations for the conduct of their dealers right. will then become a self regulation within the right. market of dealer conduct as the lenders get savvy to that that they're potentially legally exposed um, and so there will be some leaning on the market forces to regulate the, the regulate the dealers. Yeah, we've seen that. And I mean, the holder rule is, is, is a great example of that type of thing kind of rolling back uphill. Um, you mentioned Santander as well. I mean, I think it was Santander. One of them uh, basically came out a couple of years ago that they were only verifying a certain portion of their borrower submitted information like income and employment and things of that. So now we get into this whole ability to pay thing. Yeah. And so, you know, Joe, I don't know what you make. I don't know what your house costs. Like, who, <laughs> I, who am I to say if you're out of whack, right? Like, yeah. you kind of run your own right. game. I know people who leverage their life significantly, but they sleep at night and they don't default. So I'm kind of like, okay, well, I can't really criticize you for it. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people's response is, but we have to put on our, our big boy pants and say, we're going to have to figure this out. Yeah, you know, and I'm apologizing for some of the noise in the background. I have uh, windows being replaced, and apparently they can't do that very quietly. Uh, so, so I, smash, I smash. Yeah, yeah <laughs> not quietly. So no uh, worries. Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't get any worse. But uh, you know, this is really troubling, Joel. You hit on a really, really interesting point and a very difficult area, I think, to predict where we're going uh, in in the future with this. Um, look, just what you said, we're all big boys here. I think uh, business people make decisions all the time, lenders make all the time. And, and risk is just 
something that's factored in in terms of pricing, right? We can all we can all assess our own risk and our tolerance for risk and and factor in a, a pricing and decide whether or not we want to enter into a transaction or not. Um, and now you have the prospect really of the government coming in and saying, oh, no, you don't. It's really not up to your business judgment. We're going to replace your business judgment with some objective standard of what we think the ability to pay would be of the borrower that you just did business with. Like you should, you knew or you should have known that they didn't have the ability to pay. And in doing so, that really creates a new dynamic. I think it creates a, a duty, right? You know, on a legal basis, it's, it's saying that lenders now have a duty to their borrowers to make sure that they are able to you know, satisfy their obligations. And this has come in not only with Santander, with the Massachusetts AG, but now we have another case against uh, the Massachusetts AG against credit acceptance, you know, more, more recently, um, where credit acceptance, because I think it's 50% of their loans would go into default. Now, again, very high default rate, but yeah. as we know from the securitizations, there's credit enhancements there. And, you know, like, they're expected. High default rates are expected. Um, but the but the Massachusetts AG says, I don't care if they're expected or not. What's the impact on these individual borrowers? You, credit acceptance, didn't care that half of the borrowers were going to default because you have a structure in place. Your business model is made so that you hold back from the dealers and you are actually, you stand to profit no matter what the performance of that, of that loan is, right? Um, and that's just not, you know, that's not, that's against public policy, you know, basically. Um, and so I've had, I've had more than one investor uh, call me up, you know, concerned about this. And I, and I love the question because it was like worthy of an article title to gain lots of hits. Real clickbait was, um, can, can subprime auto lending become illegal? I'm like, oh, oh I'll get it. <laughs> that, that, is, that, is a, that is a great way to get everyone's attention. And he wasn't trying to, he's actually concerned about it. Yeah, I, you know, I think, you know, we're far away from from getting there. But, you know, on a on a case by case basis, if lenders have to be concerned about this specialized duty that they now hold against uh, to to borrowers against some, you know, objective standards now, there, uh, you know, government's objective standards being whether state or federal level be replacing their underwriting guidelines. Uh, you know, this is where, you know, you can, the courts can be used to affect this change over time. It'll, it'll take a while, but if, if the trend is going in that direction, that is going to impact subprime lending. And if you, and if anyone thinks that's, well, that's a progressive policy and you're really helping to disadvantage, well, I would say, let's take that to the logical conclusion. And what happens to the availability to credit mm -hmm. for the subprime borrower? That's right. If lenders have to worry about it, so you know a, what seems like a progressive policy is not necessarily progressive at all when you follow through to its logical conclusion. Well, look, there was there were there were bigger banks that were involved in subprime lending that exited once the Great Recession hit, and they have not returned, Joe. And I don't think they're going to return. And so when we look at fintech and the rest of these things that have really taken off, it causes me to pause and say. Are these people just looking for a home to park their money? They, they, they want to be banked. And the banks have said, that's fine. We're not going to offer you financial products. You can bank with us. But I mean, why would I put all my money in your bank if I can't get access to these other products? I think about you know the wallet chair concept. Mm -hmm. you know, so I, th I think there's a, I think there's a real risk 
because who's going to carry that mantle? Who's going to provide credit to these individuals? You know, we don't have a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac for subprime auto loans, but we do for mortgages. And, you know, the government involvement in this is, is, is interesting. I understand Chopra's got a, a scruple for uh, student lending as well, which I actually hope he, he can kind of navigate. I hope he can figure that out if he gets um, appointed. Do we, by the way, do you, have you been tracking that at all, Joe? Do you know where he stands in his uh, potential appointment? Um, have not heard, you know, still in progress. Um, yeah, I can't yeah. tell you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, somebody was somebody was asking me. They're like, "Are you, are, you know, through the NEF? Are you going to try to meet with this yeah. guy?" And I said, "Well, hold on, we got to." He, he's, <laughs> he's, sure. he's not he's not official yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so the, what we normally talk about in your in your survey, or we what you normally talk yeah. about in your survey is uh, subprime auto performance, right? So yeah. um, obviously, going to be some questions about that to the participants in terms of you know, what are they seeing today and what have yeah. you know, largely been the impact of COVID and all the market disruption. And now we got an oil tanker stuck in the Suez Canal. <laughs> I mean, you name it. I, yeah, I, you can't possibly throw another what, thing at us, Joe. 2021. Yeah. Just, we said 2020. <laughs> Thank God it's over. Be careful what you wish for. Who knows what's coming? I don't, yeah, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> May you live in interesting times. <laughs> that, that we got. That, that we have going for us, right? <laughs> We have opportunity, nothing but opportunity. Uh, yeah, you know, you're right, Joel. It's, I, I, I typically, you know, focus in these in these surveys on you know, performance outlook. What are folks expecting to see um, in terms of delinquencies and losses, and you know how it relates to the securitizations and, and credit ratings and all. So, then, and, and this time will be no different in that regard. We do want to hear what people are thinking. I can tell you what you know we're seeing so far. It's that it, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. Things are not that bad, you know, it's not that bad. And just as I started this conversation, it's like, do we know why, you know, what would, where would we be without all the stimulus, right? I mean, we'd be in, we'd be in bad shape. Um, and what happens as we come out of this, uh, hopefully coming out of the pandemic by the, the second half of, of the year, uh, at least we know right now that you know, originations are down. I think there's yep. been some tightening, right? So originations sure. are down, right? And we've got we've got delinquencies are the indices are are all trending down, and I think that's also you know that's because of the stimulus. That's so the stimulus. There. I think I think lenders assisted with some deferrals as well, for sure. And then I was going to say, you know, extensions are you know not as high as they were, you know, but expect as we would expect. They're not as high at the beginning, but they're they're um, they're coming back up again. They came down. And and they're and they're on their way back up. So that's something we wanna we wanna look at is what do we you know we have a lot of folks I think who are in in deferrals now who are, are going to look for more. Yeah, but we we just we just got that second shot right. We got that <laughs> second government stimulus. Yeah. So now we're now we're pushing, but unfortunately, it's not going to cure anything. It's just going to push things out a little bit more. You, you know, that's right. And so the, the question now is like the seasonal trends where we see like the request for extensions. Is that is that all we have right now? Or is it much more, you know, uh, darker than that? Right. Is yeah. it really, you know, how much of this is this going to work? How much is the stimulus going to work this time around? And and that's what we need to that's what we need to see. But I, I, I really want to hear the the level of optimism from the market. I've always been surprised from the very beginning of the, I always say it's like cautious optimism that surrounds a subprime auto market. 
I mean, I think it's, you know, a testament to the, to the participants, even when things look bad, no one was panicking, even at the beginning. You know, we actually even did a survey, which we intended to be, you know, our annual survey last year early, you know, before March. And, and you know, people were starting to feel a little nervous before the pandemic in terms of underwriting standards and, and um, consumers' debt burdens and all. Um, and some unemployment and macroeconomic changes. So I expected when we went back in right after the pandemic started, now the, the mother of all economic issues and, and just happened. So of course there's going to be panic. And you know, to, to folks' credit, you know, it was very tempered. And and here we are, you know, a year later, and it seems like you know that was the that was the right tack to take. That was the right outlook. Let's sit tight. Let's see. Trust in the fact that there were going to be relief programs, you know, government mm-hmm. programs and stimulus that weren't going to let this all go go to heck. Um, and and now it's a matter of you know how strong are the fundamentals, I guess, when yeah. we come out of this in the second half of the year. I mean, along the way, Joel, I guess you know what I got concerned about too was um, the fact that there was you know the way the auto market is tied into the lending here is like the the there was a shortage of autos right so oh, there's still there's still a huge supply there's side still. issue for new and used and, and the used. pricing for wholesale is through the roof exactly and, and so what happened then was that you had um, the collateral values being higher than anyone would have expected right and so you know what happens when a borrower asks for an extension and there's also the collateral value is, you know, is higher than it's been in the past or higher than expected. Maybe the decision then is, you know what, I'm not going to grant another extension. I'm going to take the, I'm going to repossess, right? I mean, so there was a little bit more waiting in favor of potential repossessions when you have a strong used vehicle market, right? Um, and I, there, there was something in um, the asset securitization report, and I contributed to her uh, to an, an article there. There's real concern about a, uh, a very disadvantaged community where the families all worked in a, in a chicken processing plant. Uh, and then one would go down with COVID and the other would take over their job and they would take over their car payments. And usually the lender would say, fine, as long as I'm getting paid, I don't care. But in this case, the lender said, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have to listen. I don't need to take you on as a new borrower. I can just repossess the vehicle. Um, you know, it was a real hardship story. But those are the things that those anecdotal things were coming out during um, the early stages of the pandemic. Uh, now, I think things have has settled down a bit. But as you said, they're still high. We're still looking at very strong residual values. Um, and so that I think, you know, I want to see what folks are saying in terms of how does that impact their decisions going forward as well in terms of what's the outlook for further extensions. Yeah. I think another big issue, you know, related to that, I can see how that would work. So it's, I underwrote this individual talking about this uh, community where they work in this chicken plant yeah. or whatever, you know, so I, I get COVID, um, I'm, I have to throw the car over to you and my job over to you. And uh, so as a lender, I don't have a chance to underwrite this new individual who's taking over the loan, right? If I, if I decide to allow it. Hmm. Um, the issue for me there as a lender is, okay, we need to evaluate the risk associated with this borrower actually paying and keeping keeping the money coming in versus them running me through kind of like a, a web of traps, which I've run into before. You have a, a co-borrower who is a spouse 
And this, you know, I want him off the loan. I don't like him anymore. They call mm-hmm. and this and that. And if you don't get him off, then I'm not going to pay anymore because he's the one driving the car. It's a whole nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. So I can see how from an aggravation standpoint, it may be a better option to just kill the account, repossess. It's fully within your right. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of companies, I, I, this is the one thing that I'm curious about. And I wonder, I wonder if folks would chime in, but it was, it would be about, so if you normally turn over your portfolio, right? Let's say you start with a hundred loans in a month at the beginning of the year. And in order to keep your operations steady, you need a hundred loans to, to spit off enough yield so you can cover your operational costs. And let's say it's subprime. So like you have to replenish 50% of your portfolio every year, which is not a crazy uh, expectation, Joe. But now I'm looking at, okay, do I take a flyer on this person and run the risk of missing that yield? Or do I just repo the car knowing that the yield, that the the wholesales are higher? I'm going to benefit. The consumer's going to benefit because it's a, a lesser deficiency balance, but I get that money straight to the gut so I can keep my operations going because I don't think I can replenish back to 100. So I think that, that these portfolio sizes of companies, I believe is going to be a concern. That's that's my two cents. But Joe, you're running the survey. You're obviously going to be asking for um, the participants' expectations right? about what what do they think about subprime and where it's going. Uh, what, do you, what do you think we're going to hear from them? Yeah, well, I, I think um, I, I go back to that, you know, the, that fear of the unknown, I think. And it's like the question of whether they, folks are taking a, a short term view and it's, you know, taking the um, liquidating collateral and taking as much cash they're in a liquidity crisis. So you take as much cash as you can now. Are you are are you able to play this out and survive and maintain you know your level of extensions and maintain the level of your your uh, modification programs as you, as you have in the past. I mean, that's what we're gonna we're gonna find. And I think you just raised a really interesting point for our panel discussion. Is like to really ask the folks, uh, you know, the the servicers that we get, you know, servicers or originators on the on the panel. You know, how do they expect you know this um, the change in the collateral value or increases in a strong collateral market to affect the smaller the smaller players? And how does it how is it impacted by liquidity needs, you know, going forward, because I think we could say that, you know, at least in over the last year, there was concerned about you know, whether or not there was going to be some consolidation in the market among the smaller players right. for that very reason of, of, liquid, of liquidity concerns. I just don't know going forward if we're going to see that given that it's springtime, although it's always sunny in San Diego, I know, but in the rest of the country, <laughs> people are feeling optimistic because it, you know it's sunny and folks are about to get their first or second shot, and uh, everything's looking really you know, looking good. So you can take a longer term view, and you know the uh, the release of the purse strings from the uh, warehouse lenders and finance financing sources, and you know it seems like it's we're coming into better times where folks can take a longer term view. We'll find out. Um, but you know, I think we're going to have to we're going to have to explore this in um, in a panel discussion because I don't think we're going to get enough of the you know the color. You know, we, we, we're of course limited in the number of questions we ask um, and limited in categories of responses, with a few open questions where people can expand and you know, explain themselves. But this is certainly you know worthy of um, you know a panel here a few yeah. minute discussion on this, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Joe. Um- can you can you again uh, for folks that uh, are, I'm sure are very very interested in participating, 
for folks that have participated in the past, obviously we rely on you. For folks that haven't, you know, we want to bring you in. We want to get your voice captured. Uh, how do people go about um, connecting and participating in the survey? Like I said, this is going to be out on what Thursday. What's what's next Thursday, Joe? Thursday, the April 1st, April Fool's Day. Ah, okay. Great. <laughs> so what can people do to participate? Can you give them the website? Any other details? Uh, yeah, Please. yeah, to extent, yeah, to extent any um, viewers here have not received an email from me of Credit Chronometer, if you're not already a subscriber and on our mailing list, you can go to creditchronometer.com and you'll see a place on there for you to register to take the survey. And then by registering for the survey and completing it, um, then you'll just get a, a complimentary copy of the report when it becomes available. Uh, and then uh, you'll also get an invitation, you know, to let you know where it's also going to be, you know, uh, be posted as well, or any summaries of it as well. Um, and then I'm always, I'm always happy, Joel, um, to talk to folks, you know, if they want to hear more and get into it, I, you know, whether you're a lender or an investor, you know, this is all about helping the market and sharing information. Um, and so it goes beyond just our clients. And so if anybody wants to talk, you know, after they complete the survey, even before if they see it, they want to get some input, feedback on what's going on. You know, just like I mentioned, the investors who called and said, tell me more about ability to pay. Yeah. You know, um, I, I have no issue. They can always, you know, always contact me. They can get my um, email through the site. They can, um, they can uh, communicate with me that way. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping folks will go to creditchronometer.com and, and take the survey. I'd love to hear from you. Outstanding. Well, folks, it's been a it, Joe. Thank thank you so much. It's been Joe Chiaffi of, of Davis and Gilbert. He is the architect uh, of the credit chronometer, which in my mind is, is a bigger deal than architecting the CFPB. You've you've succe- <laughs> you've successfully eclipsed them. You're you're better than Elizabeth Warren. All right. Ah, uh-huh. thank you. <laughs> she's she's prettier. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening to the podcast. Please like, follow, and share. Um, You can always provide feedback to me. And then um, please consider participating in the Credit Chronometer. Joe, thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. Really appreciate it. Glad to see you again, too. Likewise. Take care. The Consumer 5 Podcast has been brought to you by Nortridge, loan software that accelerates change. We'd also like to thank the National Automotive Finance Association, the only trade association exclusively serving the non-prime auto financing industry.